from the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway, and this is Creator Talks. My guest today is Vali Chandrasekharan. Vali is a producer and comedy writer who lives in LA. His first work was for NBC, writing television scripts for My Name is Earl. Two other programs he wrote for were 30 Rock and Modern Family, which were Emmy-nominated multiple times for Best Comedy Series. Bally's work on 30 Rock was nominated by the NAACP Image Awards for Outstanding Writing in a Comedy Series. He has written his own comic, Genius Animals, which is available for free and in its entirety online at GeniusAnimals.net. Genius Animals is a comedic mystery about the situation where you think your relationship is going well, then one day your significant other disappears. When you try to figure out what happened, you can't tell if you have been ghosted or have to save all of humanity. Why did Bali decide to go from Hollywood scriptwriter to comic book writer? What is his connection to the webcomics artist Jun-Pierre Shiozawa? What is the difference between writing for 30 Rock characters and his comic? How is making a graphic novel both exactly like and very different from running a TV show? Did you know Vali also spent some time in front of the camera on an episode of The Office? We go behind the scenes to learn how he landed the role and what the experience was like working with the cast. We discuss these topics plus filming a show before a live studio audience and the use of laugh tracks in a comedy series. And in my signature segment, I kick back with the creator to learn more about Vali as a person. So please join me in welcoming Vali Chandra Shakeran talking about his screenwriting and his first comic, Genius Animals. Here now on Creator Talks. Bali, welcome to Creator Talks. Hey, sir. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. I know it must be difficult finding time with work and twins. Yeah, I think everyone's having a difficult moment with finding time to stuff now, but this was something I was looking forward to all day to get to talk about something fun. You're a scriptwriter for television, and I'm always fascinated with people that work in television in any way, any capacity. This must be something that you've always wanted to do, that you've aspired to do. How did you manage to get a career writing for television? Oh my God. I've wanted to do this since I was a child. I remember I was obsessed with Saturday Night Live and Letterman Mm -hmm. and then Conan O'Brien. That was Conan was kind of my youth. And like a lot of kids, and I would come up with an excuse to watch them. I would just sort of do my homework really slowly till my parents fell asleep (laughs) so I could stay up and then watch the shows. But I grew up in middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. I'd never heard of anyone or met anyone who worked in TV. There was no internet then. And I remember being in my guidance counselor's office and reading, you remember there was like these Barron's books of like colleges and Mm -hmm. they tell Mm -hmm. you about a little bit about each college. And I was flipping through them and I saw that a lot of the writers from David Letterman seem to have come from this one comedy magazine called the Harvard Lampoon that I'd never heard of before. And that was the only time I had ever heard, this is how you get a job in comedy. There was like a joke in it that says, it seems like there's, you know, a tunnel from the Lampoon to the Letterman writer's room. (laughs) And I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to write. I never wanted to be David Letterman. I never wanted to be the guy on TV, but I wanted to be one of his writers. I thought that job seemed so fun coming up with gags like, will it float or, you know, those man on the street bits and coming up with (laughs) questions to ask brother Theodore, like that seemed like the most fun, funniest job in the world. And he, I thought was the smartest person alive. So I studied really hard (laughs) and I really liked computers and I went to college for computer science and I joined the Lampoon and I meet people who actually worked in television. And through that, I started to find my way through that world and you would meet other people who wanted to be tv writers i moved to la and i would go to the same bars as other people who are my age who wanted to be tv writers or work in television and you sort of just build your community in that way of like-minded people and you help each other out and you work with each other and eventually i got an agent but i had moved out to la before knowing if i could ever make it as a comedy writer so i got a job as a business strategy consultant And I was working at this company in San Diego. 
My job was to help two IT systems talk to each other. A large biotech company had bought a smaller biotech company, and they said, we want our softwares to connect. Here, consultant, this is boring, too boring for any of us to do. <laughs> Why don't you do it? And I remember hating the job so much, and I was in a windowless conference room, and I got a call, and it was my agent that I had managed to get they told me that I had gotten my first TV job. And that was the best feeling I think I've ever had in my career. Because until that moment, you always want to be a TV writer, but you don't know if you can make it. <laughs> you don't know if you'll ever get that first job. And then from this moment on, there will be a lot of things that I want to get, but I kind of know a little bit more about the process. So it won't surprise me or it won't feel like a step function up or down. But that was like a zero to one moment in my life where I suddenly was like, I don't ever have to come back to this window of this conference room. <laughs> and I went home. I was staying at a hotel and I must have just had this look on my face because I, I had been staying at that hotel for weeks. And when I came in, I went up to my room. Then there was a knock at my door and someone from the front desk had sent up a note that said, Mr. Chandrasekhar, you're such a delightful guest. You know, you can stay anywhere and here's a free martini on the house. And I thought like, oh, I was radiating such happiness that I will never have to come back to this hotel and never have to go back to that windowless conference room that I get to go sit in a room with other funny writers and come up with gags and bits and hear about their weirdnesses and talk to other smart people all day long. I was so thrilled. That first job was a show called My Name is Earl, which ran for four years. I was very lucky. Most times when you get your first job, you know, you go half a season and then you're done. But that show ran for a while and nobody on that show knew each other beforehand. We were all just from small towns. So it was a really good community because there wasn't clicks already. The writers on that show taught me a lot. And they sort of are to my friends to this day. And that was my journey into comedy. It still makes me happy remembering it. When you sit in a room with writers, is it one of those situations that I've heard before where you're all working on a script and you're throwing around ideas? So at the end of the day, the finished product, it's not like, well, that was my idea. That was my idea. It's kind of hard to remember where the idea first started for that joke and how it finally ended up. And did you find that to be the case, that things just happened so quickly and so organically that it was hard to give attribution for who came up with something? It depends. It sort of is and it isn't. Like, for example, when you're rewriting a script, you're sitting there going line by line through the script, and you will remember who came up with the funny joke that made everyone else laugh, even if it was improved upon by someone else afterwards. But then there are other times. It's like being at a party or any other group dynamic where you really like find a vibe and you can't figure out who it directly came from. But even in those scenarios, there's a quality about some writers where you think she's really funny and she has an energy that makes everyone else in the room funny too. Or and when she's in the room, everyone wants to like step up their game to be as good as her or him. You can tell that about certain people. It's like a kind of comedy room charisma that they have, that they're not only great, they make everyone around them great. It's like watching someone in a sketch with Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell is so funny and everyone else in his sketches are great too. Do you remember any lines that you wrote, any jokes that just really stand out in your mind? Oh, that's a great question. We've been re-watching 30 Rock uh, lately, and there was a joke of mine that came on recently that I remembered writing. It made me laugh a lot. It was an episode where Tracy Jordan, it was a spin on that trope of the dumb guy getting smart. I can't remember why that happened or why he had convinced himself that what had happened in the episode. That seems like what we would have more have done, that it didn't really happen, but he felt like he was in a comedy trope. He comes up to Liz Lemon and says, I finally understand the end of the sixth sense. Those are the names of the people who made the movie. <laughs> and I always enjoyed that joke. I loved writing lines for Tracy Jordan because he's he's almost like a child. It's what makes it funny when your kid talks because it's a, such a ridiculous, crazy statement said with such confidence. But there's also a logic to it that you do understand <laughs> that it does make sense. That's not the end of the movie. You know that, Tracy, <laughs> but I know what you're talking about. And he can always subvert expectations 
And part of it is just Tracy Morgan's genius at delivery. He's like one of the great line readers in comedy history. Oh, we love that show. And he's one of my favorites. I have a Who Dat Ninja uh, magnet <laughs> for my refrigerator. The, the poster that was in his office. Yeah. And one episode I remember, and I don't know who wrote this part, but it was when he had the Tracy Morgan meat maker. And the thing <laughs> shot out scalding hot juice at him. He's like, these machines are defective. <laughs> <laughs> and years later, I'm watching the Stooges, right? You know, some highbrow entertainment. And I remember seeing a scene where like a clam squirts one of the Stooges in the face. And I was like, that's just like the Tracy Morgan meat maker. I wonder if that writer saw that Three Stooges episode. <laughs> I wonder. I, I don't remember that bit, but there was a lot of deep appreciation for comedy and comedy history and trying to figure out how to freshen up something that you've seen before or or twist something you've seen before because it's you've seen that like how do we turn it one more time because people found it familiar already not only have you been behind the camera writing but you've been on camera you were in the office episode titled diwali where michael encourages the entire scranton branch to support kelly and attend a local celebration of diwali the hindu festival of lights and i saw that one i don't remember you being in there did i miss you were you (laughs) (laughs) i am terrible Did you have a speaking part or were you an extra or how did that work out? I had a speaking part. What happened was Mindy Kaling and I moved out to L.A. around the same time and we were friends and we still are friends. And we threw a Diwali party one year for all our friends. And then I think the next year she pitched maybe her character on The Office throws up that party. And she asked if I would come be in the show because the writers were on the show frequently on The Office. And I said to her, I'm really not an actor. You don't want to do this. You should cast somebody. And she said, I'm from Pennsylvania. It's set in Scranton. Like, we have writers on the show all the time, like, and we want it to feel real. So just come be on the show. And the bit was that I am brought in as a sort of possible love interest for Pam, kind of driving Roy, her fiance, or I think this is before she was her fiance, driving him insane. And so I get there and I'm very nervous because I'm suddenly like, this is real and we're on camera (laughs) and everyone else. Like Mindy is a writer at Odd Screen, but she's really a good actress and a great comedy actress. And they start shooting the scene, the first scene they did to sort of warm me up. It's kind of wide, so you don't have to hear my dialogue and you're just sort of seeing us from across the room with shaky camera. And Jenna Fisher turns to me and says, how did you enjoy medical school? And I said, what do you mean? I'm a writer on My Name is Earl. I'm not actually a doctor. (laughs) Mindy asked if I would come here. And then she goes, it's four years, right? I realize, oh, she's in character because they're shooting us. And, (laughs) And then I think it's so ridiculous that she's treating me seriously. A huge smile breaks across my face and I can't stop doing it (laughs) then they came in for my lines and i think i couldn't stop it (laughs) i think they ended up cutting that scene i felt really bad (laughs) because it kind of made the story a little bit hard to follow and they just had to do something about my horribly creaky performance i apologize to mindy but did say that i did warn you that i was terrible (laughs) to which she said you still came (laughs) You didn't stop the problems from happening. As a professional, as a writer, is it difficult now writing for television because the market is so fragmented with so many different forms of entertainment? You know, a lot's being pulled away, watching streaming now. Is broadcast difficult to find work for? Well, this is the billion-dollar question right now, and I, I actually don't know the answer to it. I do believe that it's more fun now than ever, I think, writing for television, because there are so many venues to tell your story that if you can say why it's really a great idea with enthusiasm and offer a little bit of proof for it, you have a better chance than ever to get to tell your story. And there's so many marketplaces that you might not need to pull in huge numbers in order for the people who make the show to be happy. That being said, I do personally find something very special about the mass hit, about something like a show like The Office or like 30 Rock or Empire when it was big, like a show that everybody watched together. And then when you went to work the next day or Game of Thrones, that everyone 
could talk about it. There was something really nice about that to me. And also, I think there's something really nice about a show that both me and my parents would like. And The Office does that. Like Will Ferrell has this amazing ability to make comedy nerds really happy and my parents really happy. And I think it's really, really hard to do that. And you have to have really special actors who are really let you in and are really charismatic. You have to even be better at it than you ever were before because there's so many distractions. But I still think it's possible. I still think people like to be into something in a social way, in a way that they can talk to other people about it. Even in comics, most comic people I know, comics people like really small comics and the really big comics at the same time and they enjoy them in different ways. I hope there's another big mass network show that really gets a lot of people watching again. That would really excite me to have like this shared experience again on television. And I think it will happen, I feel like it's, sort of something humans naturally want. One of the things I like about all the shows that you've written for is that there's no laugh track. Mm -hmm. A lot of comedies that get cranked out, they have that laugh track like, okay, this is funny. You should laugh here. And to me, it takes away so much from the comedy. I don't know if it's funny. And it makes me feel more like I'm there if I don't hear the laugh track. What are your thoughts about the laugh track? Can I ask you a question before sure. I answer that? Do you watch any of the night, like Seinfeld now, or do you, does you play Friends in your house now, or any of those sitcoms from that era anymore? Good question. Occasionally a Seinfeld. And does it bug you in there, or do you think you don't hear it anymore because you've seen it before? Yeah, you know, I probably, I probably don't notice it anymore. That was a live studio audience situation. I mean, sometimes they use the canned laughter. Yes, is, they do that too. That bothers me more. The live studio audience, if it's organic, especially when there's an uproar of laughter or something really, really funny, I feel like I'm watching something in a theater with other people. It's very interesting question I think about a lot. I'm actually working on a multi-camera pilot right now. It would be shot in front of a studio audience and we're having some of these same questions. Will, will having that audience make it feel old-fashioned or is that something that we don't like anymore? Because when you think about it, Curb Your Enthusiasm and Everybody Loves Raymond, they hit a lot of the same themes. And I wonder, like, would a lot of comedy snobs look down on Curb Your Enthusiasm if there was a laugh track like there was? <laughs> I don't know. I can't tell. And it's funny for me because I grew up watching all of those multi-camera shows that had an audience, I heard people laughing. That was everything that I grew up watching, and that's what made me want to go into comedy stuff like that. Even those Saturday Night Live, David Letterman, like you're hearing all of the audience and that laughter. And then my first job was My Name is Earl. It was sort of the beginning of this sort of single camera revolution in comedy that changed everything. And all of a sudden, we were able to tell bigger stories, and it was really exciting. And all of the most talented writers seem to want to write their single camera pilot. And I've spent my whole career working on that. And every single pilot I wrote was that too. And now our audiences have sort of dwindled for single camera. Those shows have started to feel a little bit more niche. And I started to wonder, almost for my own creative sake, is that format old fashioned? Or did we just start doing the same thing too frequently in that format. If Mitch Hurwitz or Dan Harmon came up with a great multi-camera in front of a studio audience idea, could it work and would it be a big hit? And I actually don't know the answer to that. I have a feeling, especially right now in this pandemic, that it could work because I watch Seinfeld a lot still and it really cracks me up. I watched the news radio pilot the other day and I think if that aired today, I would still think this is one of the funniest shows I've ever seen. I'm going to watch every episode of this show. But I can't tell. We'll find out. I haven't seen one that has given me that feeling in a very long time. Yeah, I guess what came to mind to me first was some of the shows that are on now where they actually use a laugh track, which I don't like. Now, that, like you said, the live studio audience, there's that kind of sense of community and you're all reacting together. And again, it's organic. You know, people are laughing at different rates, different pitches. They're laughing mm -hmm. really, really hard or they're giggling versus turn up the laugh track, turn down the laugh track, which is <laughs> it's terrible. If it's not well done and you can notice it, it feels like you're covering for it. <laughs> and I don't watch those shows. It's one of those things I go, oh, that's on. That's nice. And I don't yeah. watch it. And I do a little bit wonder if as 
that type of show has become its own thing, just hearing the laugh track is a signal to certain people, I'm not mm. going to like this show. And we talked a lot about television, which is a big part of your life, but now you've taken the crazy step to step into comics. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I have been a comics fan for a very long time. I do remember, I'm not going to say my whole life, because I remember being very into superheroes when I was a kid. And I was obsessed with the Richard Donner Superman movie. I was started being obsessed with it when I was four years old. My family didn't have a VCR, but we had a tape of it. Every time we went to somebody's house, I would bring that tape and watch that movie. And I just started showing it to my four-year-old twins. And I was sort of thrilled to see that they're as transfixed with it and at the same parts as I was. But didn't realize it was two and a half hours. I mean, it's a full hour before Clark Kent is a grown-up in Metropolis. <laughs> <laughs> it is a kind of amazing to see. But I loved that world. And then when I got to college, someone gave me Daniel Klaus. And I thought, oh, what is this? This is like something I've never seen before. And there's all these different kinds of stories that you can do in this genre. And I find that to be sort of interesting. And I'd just been a comics fan for a really long time. And then I was working on 30 Rock, which was a wonderful job and I loved everybody, but our hours were terrible. We worked until 10 p.m. on early nights and until like, you know, midnight on other nights. And I was married at the time. My wife is like me, grew up here is Indian, but she was working in India. So we weren't even together. So if I would come home, I wouldn't really know what to do with myself or on the weekends because you wouldn't really make plans with anyone because you didn't know if you'd be able to get out in time to make the plans. So I would come home and I would just turn on the TV and I would start writing. And I wanted to write something that was just for me, that was just fun and sort of crazy and maybe even unproducible, like just as the kind of creative exercise. And I came up with a story that became my comic book, Genius Animals. And I wrote it out and I thought, I'll just send this out as a spec and maybe I'll get work off of it. And that did work for a while because people could tell I was having fun with it. And then years later, I went to a painting class. My wife in college took a semester off to go to this place called the Aegean Center, this art school in Greece where she just painted and sculpted and learned about art. And one of her classmates during that time later became a teacher there. And after we had our twins, he started teaching these watercolor landscape painting classes where he would pick a city and would arrange accommodations and pick a bunch of spots. And he would just go there and he would bring your watercolor materials and he would paint. And we had two-year-old twins and we hadn't really done anything in two years. And my <laughs> wife said, wouldn't it be great to just look at something beautiful and take in its beauty for two hours and done, done deal. We were so excited. We were able to convince my parents and my wife's parents to come with us to help with the kids. And we painted and I am not really a painter or an artist. And I had a little bit of experience in high school, but June was such a great teacher that I really was happy with the process. And I was happy with what I learned about framing and all of that. And it was really, I found it cathartic. And as we became friends. About a year later, during Inktober, I saw he did all these panels about how his mother and father met and their lives, even his grandparents before that. So his name is Jun-Pierre Shiozawa. He's half French, half Japanese. And I thought, oh, this is so great because his dad is Japanese and his mother is French. They're from such wildly different families. And that's how everyone feels, though. Everyone feels like my mom's side and my dad's side, they're so different. And yet he was also so specific in his panels. It was so interesting to me. And I thought, like, this guy has some interesting vibe. I wonder if we could work together. And we just started chatting. And I thought, oh, I have this unproducible idea. People always asked me if I wanted to make it an animated movie. And I never wanted to do it because I thought the story should feel like it takes place in real life. And comics has this amazing ability, unlike animated movies, which look like cartoons, and I think I experience them as cartoons, comics, even though they're drawings, I think of them as that's just the rendering of reality they chose. You can look through a comic, you like look through the loneliness of the long distance cartoonist. I mean, that's about him, but you really think you're looking at a real person and their life. 
and as a human, not as an animated character. So I thought, I wonder if you would experience this story as being a reality if we did it as a graphic novel. And I started getting really excited about what that format offered in an academic way almost <laughs> that I couldn't get in TV for this idea because of I didn't have $100 million or whatever to some yeah. special effects mm -hmm. or however much it would cost. So that that's kind of what got me in. And I got really excited after working in television for 15 years. You know how you might start to like in writing sometimes we say shift f7 like because that used to be on microsoft word the thesaurus if you wanted to like <laughs> change your word the word but still have the same idea yeah. you would sometimes have shift f7 moves you find yourself doing the same moves that you've sort of honed over time and you might be getting better at the craft of it but you might not be breathing new life into it or coming up with new ideas like you did at the beginning of your career and i wanted a way to make sure i wasn't doing that and switching genres completely seemed like a good way to like get creative again in a way that just trying something different, forcing myself to write something different for TV wouldn't do. And you were going to shop this around to publishers, planning to go to cons or just fire it out through email. But then the pandemic hit. <laughs> Wonderful timing. Yes. I feel like that could be the last sentence of almost everything these days. But then the pandemic <laughs> <laughs> yes, we were going to do all of that. We were going to go to cons and set up our tables. And, you know, you always read, and this is advice I always give young TV writers, which is there are no shortcuts, really. You have to go do that work of going to cons and meeting people who make comics and buy comics and building up your community. And <laughs> there, you can't do that anymore. Who's going to come see a panel of two people that they've never heard of before on a Zoom con? So we were going to go with a small publisher that June met at a Thought Bubble, a con in Leeds, England, last year. But then because of the pandemic, things just started getting pushed and pushed. And we didn't really know when the book would come out. And we also didn't know how we would be able to even get the word out about this book from two people you've never heard of in the world of comics. And we were sitting at home going crazy ourselves during the pandemic, and we thought, well, why not just put it out ourselves, chapter by chapter? We didn't break it that way. We didn't write the story that way. But, you know, Anna Sunbeam is great, and she did that. And not that we're <laughs> Walden, who's a genius, but I, we liked that model a lot of just – putting this thing we made out into the world because it's really hard to make something and just hold on to it and not have anyone else see it. And we were really excited to show it to people. So kind of like on a whim, we built a site and just started posting a chapter every week and telling our friends about it and starting to reaching out to people online and trying to build our community that way. And we've been really touched by the response and really thrilled by how we found there's a lot of thirst amongst other people in the comics business to try and connect with each other in some way during this period. It's really smart and it's really funny. And people that like 30 Rock, my name is Earl, that's the kind of humor that's in there. As soon as I read it, I'm like, oh, yeah. I mean, clearly you've written for these shows because this is the kind of humor it is. And I was laughing out loud at it, which is not something that always happens when I read a book like that. Oh, thank you. And what you're doing by putting it out there for free is a great idea because a lot of creators do that before it becomes published. You might say, well, why would people even buy it if it's already been out there for free? They do. They will. I mean, you build that audience first and then they'll want a copy. It could happen at some point by starting this way, by trying to build that audience and build that relationship with them. I think that's true. And I've actually noticed some publishers recently being okay with leaving the book out there for free, which I think is really great. Because I like the idea, especially with a book like this, that we could reach people who might just be comedy fans or might be interested in June from the art world, who might not necessarily go to a specialty shop every week and remember to pick up their friend's book. I think we're getting some people from our different worlds to check it out because it's easy right now and we're all at home. Anybody can just go online and read this. And you've got, I think, six or seven chapters up now. I, I read all of them up to date. Chapter seven went up this past Tuesday, and eight, which is the final chapter, will come out next Tuesday. Reading through it, there is a character in there, Nick Attack, who's on a radio show C2C. And as soon as yes. I read that, I was like, <laughs> Art Bell Coast to Coast. Yes. Oh, fellow Las Vegas resident. I would get up very early in the morning to commute to work 
back in like the late 90s and the first thing on my radio was Art Bell coast to coast talking about contrails in the sky and things like that so uh, that's where I heard the name and that's when as soon as I saw that C to C and I was like I know what that's referring to yes (laughs) (laughs) I love that show oh man so you used to listen to it every day on that drive-in when I was getting up because I wasn't up that early but I would catch like the last 15 minutes or so and it'd be dark outside and I'm listening to it and I'm like I'm getting the creeps (laughs) really (laughs) kind of freaked me out oh this is really scary I think in LA it would play on KFI 640 on AM radio. It would start late at night, I think at 10, and it would go till 2 in the morning. But I became a subscriber to the site, and I would often, when I was living in New York, just listen to it in the background <laughs> as I made, you know, worked or made dinner or something like that. And for people who don't know, I think most people who will listen to your show probably know Art Bell, but it's a conspiracy theory radio show about the unknown and the unexplained and aliens and all of that. And he has four hours to fill every day. It's now hosted by George Nori, I believe. You could tell that sometimes Art Bell would have a guest on and they'd be like, I've been abducted 40 times. And Art Bell was like, yeah, you know, I've had some out-of-body experiences as well that were similar to that. So maybe it wasn't a, that one wasn't an abduction. Maybe that was just an out-of-body experience. And he takes them really seriously. And then other times someone will come out and be like, you know, I think I have this berry growing in my backyard that can cure cancer. And Art Bell, you can tell, is being a good host, but is not into it and thinks this guy is crazy. (laughs) And it always made me laugh that even Art Bell is like, I know I have a radio show that crazy people come on to, but that's not going to be my first guess. I also do a lot of true, real paranormal reporting, and that's what I stand behind. I like that he thought some people were crazy and other ones weren't. That show was on in the Philadelphia market in like the dead of night. Made it extra creepy to me when you're listening to something about conspiracy theories and aliens at that time of day. It is just really weird. It was very effective. And then the ads would be for stuff like here's a coffee bean sized canister that has all the seeds you would need to restart civilization <laughs> like a, a small society after the apocalypse <laughs> and you're like this is a company there's enough people buying this that they <laughs> they can afford advertising on a national radio show like this stuff was amazing i loved it i loved it all What else should our listeners know about the story, just to kind of tease them a bit? I started getting interested in this story because I was very obsessed with the idea of why human beings need narrative. Like, why do we need to have a story for why things are happening? Because a lot of times you can think in your day-to-day life, like, oh, those two or three things are unrelated. And so I don't have to put any stock in them or there's no meaning in it. But that's a really unsatisfying way to go through life. And no one can really do that. Even the most Zen person wants to find (laughs) some connection. And I kept wondering, why is that? And then that leads you to certain artists like Werner Herzog. There's a character based on Werner Herzog in the book. For legal reasons, I've changed his name. He sort of famously, even in his documentaries, will stage scenes where he will have someone walk into a room and close the door and like open it and close it again. And then he would reveal in interviews like that didn't actually happen. I asked him to do that. And then they're like, well, you put this in a nonfiction documentary. And his response is almost bafflement of like, what are you talking about? It's serving the purpose of the story. The story is true, so why does it matter if he did it himself or I did it? His idea of it helped the narrative that he wanted to tell. And the main character's job is an editor, which is someone who looks through a lot of footage in a documentary and helps create the narrative that you see. I started to wonder, well, what if the narrative, if not having narratives makes you insane, what if you could come up with a narrative that might make you think you're crazy? then what would you choose between? Would you rather have the narrative that makes you sure you're crazy or not have a narrative which is really insane making? And how can I come up with a bunch of crazy characters to make it fun and funny to tell a lot of big jokes along the way of exploring that that philosophical idea? And that's on GeniusAnimals.net. And by the time this goes out, they'll all be up. So people can check them out and binge if they would like. And I like the way you've divided the chapters with animals. That was June Pierre's idea. He did these mugshots of the genius animals (laughs) to sort of give a sense of eerie foreboding that I really love that idea. 
It is. It's kind of like uh, Ozark, where they have symbols or images at the beginning of the episode, and then somewhere along the episode, that image or object shows up. You realize why it was there. I have to give total credit to him, and I loved that move. So this is something that's given you a chance to hone your skills again, to try something different, flex new muscles. Is it more liberating to write just by yourself, or do you really miss writing with other writers? Oh my gosh, I miss writing with other writers so much. I think sitting in a writer's room is my favorite thing to do. That's the number one thing I miss during the pandemic. And there's a lot of TV shows that have Zoom rooms where you convene for a couple hours a day that way. And I think that is really fun, but you sort of miss what I think is special about the writer's room in many ways, which is the not work portion of it. (laughs) Like it's very effective writing a script during a Zoom room because you have to be focused all the time. But one thing I love is being around really smart and funny people and hearing what random thing they're into or something that happened to them. But when you're on Zoom, eight people are on Zoom and you want to tell your buddy a story, like you have to broadcast it to everybody. (laughs) So every story has to be important enough to tell your boss and everyone else in the room, (laughs) not a casual aside. I like writing my first drafts by myself. You come up with sort of slower comedy, (laughs) if that makes any sense, Mm -hmm. like longer ideas or weirder ideas that slowly come out, whereas some rooms are really good at coming up with that stuff too. But I I think the seed often comes from a person working on their own. And the room I find to be really good at making really big explosive moments, really great jokes, really fun, big twists, building like that. Like the scaffolding, I think, is really good alone. And then adding all of the detail, making something Baroque (laughs) almost, is really good from the room. What are some of the differences of writing comedy for characters like Liz Lemon, Jack Donahue on 30 Rock, and writing for comics? The number one difference is actors like Tina Fey and Alec Baldwin can say anything. There's no phrasing or sentence that is too hard to get their mouth around. And because of that, we just added and added and added. They don't speak in two-sentence speeches. Alec Baldwin speaks in eight-sentence speeches or sometimes a whole page. And I loved doing that. Writing like that was so fun. Those actors were such great toys to have. In comics, people don't want to read that much. (laughs) It's not a knock on readers. It just takes away from the aesthetic of the page. And you really have to pull it back. It becomes more classic sitcom styles or like, you know, Neil Simon dialogue in a way. I had not had to write like that in my career. And so I had to pull back and I still would think like, all right, I know this is too many lines. I know this is this is past the rule of thumb, how much a character is supposed to talk. But Nick Attic is a radio host, <laughs> and I am making a comic for fun, and it's weird, so he's going to talk too much because I love Coast to Coast, <laughs> and I want people to feel how much I love Coast to Coast. Bali, we're at that point of the show where we kick back with the creator and ask you the questions. I like to ask all my guests to learn more about you as a person. What do you like to do, Bali, for recreation? I mean, as a father of twins right now, the true answer is nothing. I like to sit there Mm -hmm. and do nothing and sort of wander around my house. But I think that's not a really satisfying answer. I think the thing I do the most now is I'm very big Bob Dylan obsessive. And I will go to my garage and take a beer and listen to a Bob Dylan live show that I haven't heard before. And I really love doing that. I started getting into it when They released this box set of the 1974 Rolling Thunder review around the same time that Martin Scorsese, you know, sort of documentary came out on Netflix. And it was a ton of great shows and a ton of great guests. And it was so fun and the energy is great. And I love how Dylan throws away arrangements and comes up with new ones and builds on other arrangements. And he has a different energy every night. He's having fun, you can tell. It's such a blast. And then, you know, you'll go down rabbit holes on the internet and go onto message boards and start downloading stuff and trading tapes. And that's when the sickness really gets bad. Yeah, it's funny. My wife and I uh, both enjoy a little Dylan. I mean, I don't know if she's a big fan, but I uh, got a copy of Nashville Skyline and I put together a little playlist for us. And when we were out in uh, Mesa Verde, Colorado, 
at a lodge. We had one of those little cabins. It wasn't even a lodge. It was a cabin. And I just put on that playlist, and she goes, wow, that's a really good playlist. Picking songs off that album. So uh, I feel like yeah. a little Dylan, too. That's a, good, that's a good vibe for that oh, for yeah. that place, too. Nashville Skyline. Oh, mm-hmm. the stuff he's doing with his voice there. <laughs> that's a different podcast. And, and do like his Christmas song. I don't care anybody says. I do. I play it every Christmas to everyone's great irritation. <laughs> <laughs> Annoying people is part of the fun of putting on that album, but I legitimately agree with you. I legitimately like it. His phrasing is so strange. It's fun to listen to hear those songs again. It's not Christmas without it. Probably <laughs> 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 thinking back, what was your favorite birthday? Maybe it's because of where we are right now in time. I think it was my last birthday. <laughs> Because my wife has a younger brother and I have a younger sister and my twins used to call each other Nana before they could really talk. So we started doing these things called Nana weekends where it would just be siblings getting together and we went to the beach and it was last September so it was before the pandemic and we just barbecued and we went to a chili festival and there was a hot tub and we walked around on the beach with beers and it was really fun and people were you know my sister lives in new york city and it was a really great great fun time and i'm feeling it especially deeply now because we can't do that and we haven't gotten together since then actually the last time we got together we ended up cutting it short and leaving because it's right when we realized oh this is going to be bad it's like a token for me of a life we could return to soon so i think that would be my favorite birthday and there was a lot of doing puzzles and listening to bob dylan and just cooking whatever we could get at the grocery store it was really fun also thinking back to when you were a teenager what posters and or pictures did you have on your bedroom wall i had a albert einstein imagination is more important than knowledge poster (laughs) all right I don't know why. I think I liked his hair. Being a math and science nerd, he was a math and science nerd, obviously like the smartest genius math and science nerd, but also created a vibe of being cool because he was sort of funny and interesting. So I thought like when you're a nerd and worried about being an outcast, you think like, okay, it is possible to be a nerd that people don't think of as a dork. Uh, That seemed cool. I think it was also a lot of pages ripped out of Rolling Stone, like photographs of Bob Dylan and Rolling Stone, back from Rolling Stone, and then I I loved soccer. I think I had like an Alexi Lalas poster (laughs) on my wall. I don't know if anyone even remembers who that is now. I think he does commentary for the World Cup now. He had big red hair, oh my gosh. This is the old island book hypothetical situation. You're stuck on a desert island. You only have one book or set of books with you that are all related to pass the time. Something you like to read for pleasure, not for survival, but just you enjoy reading. It can be a comic, it can be a graphic novel, it can be a novel. What would be that book? There's part of me that wants to say Proust because that's the only scenario under which I can imagine ever reading Proust. Like I'm stuck on an island for the rest of my life and there's nothing else to read. And it's like one of those books you're supposed to read that I know I have no interest in. But... My real one would probably be Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. I love that book so much. And it feels like you want to have a book that you would get a lot out of from subsequent readings. And that book does that for me. He also is kind of like Werner Herzog to me in a way where I think he's a crazed, amazing mind who is almost touched by God or something like that or whatever you believe is your version of that and has these visions Like if you take a step back, he's very funny (laughs) in a way to me, even Blood Meridian, which is so violent. Every once in a while you see on Twitter, someone has made like a Cormac McCarthy bot where they've like trained a neural network or an artificial intelligence on all of Cormac McCarthy or just Blood Meridian or something. And it has it spit out two sentences of fake Cormac McCarthy. It's always so funny. And it also seems like, oh, this isn't that different from real Cormac McCarthy. It'll be like one from today. The only constant in this fictional land is the drummer, and the only constant in man is the drummer's blood, which is nonsense, but also not that different from a line from No Country for Old Men. How does he walk that line where it's not silly, but it could be if he just went at it a little bit more? (laughs) Next hypothetical. If an action figure were made of you, what would be your accessory? I think... 
I would ride around on an octopus. Never had that answer before. An octopus is a big part of genius animals. I'm very obsessed with octopuses and octopus intelligence. Uh, I'm fascinated by them and love them. And also, you know, being Indian, the Hindu tradition, a lot of the gods have animal vehicles <laughs> that they have. So like I sort of that imagery doesn't seem so crazy to me, but that would be my it would be sort of like an Aquaman figurine and an octopus. You know, they can go on land and water. So I think it's actually a pretty good vehicle. <laughs> yeah, I have seen that video with the uh, octopus booking down the beach. Though I think that was animation. Oh, was it? I think that was computer generated animation, which is amazing. <laughs> Fold me. <laughs> you could see the sand get wet as it went. It was great. Yeah. Now, what is your favorite beverage? You know, I'm 38 now, so drinking beer is a different experience for me. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> it sticks, it stays on your body a little bit more than it used to when you when you're a young man. But I do love, especially when it's hot, a cold beer. And if you have too many of them now, you can easily be groggy in the morning. But especially now with craft beers, which I feel like are surprisingly alcoholic. I feel like they should have a, instead of a percentage, they should tell you like how many Bud Light equivalents they are on the side of the can <laughs> so you can like properly tell that I didn't just have two beers. I actually had four and a half Bud right. Light. That would be good information. But my local beer and wine store sells this brand called Mikeller and they have this Windy Hill beer and the can is really beautiful and the art is on it. And I think it's a hazy IPA. I don't know. It's just delicious. I love having one of those right now. That would be my drink of choice. Yeah, the art does kind of pull me in sometime on some of those beers. I'll try just because of the way the label looks. I'm like, yeah, I think I'll try that. Yeah, there's some signal that a lot of thought went into this. Mm -hmm. At least I might not like it, but at least they're really trying hard for something. And my final question, what should people know about you that they may not know? A, a special talent, uh, a special interest? What don't they know? Oh, my gosh. That's a good question. Um, I love music, but don't understand it in any technical way at all. And I really hide this a lot. Like I was in band all through high school. I played in the marching band. I played saxophone. I love going to musical shows. I love reading about musicians and biographies of composers and rock musicians and the Beatles and all of that. And I have no technical understanding or appreciation of music. And it's something I feel like I have to like hide because once you start talking to people in that world, a lot of them are really skilled. And I start to think, oh, my God, they're going to discover I'm a fraud. And I'm just <laughs> I'm just I'm like no better than the guy who says he loves the Beatles, but can only tell you about three huge hit songs. <laughs> I'm so fearful of being discovered as a poser. Yeah, talking music appreciation with musicians, I feel a little out of my element because they understand how the music was put together, how the chords were made, how things were played. They tune their guitar to a D flat, and I'm like, oh, yeah. That's the sort of place, yeah. yeah. I feel like this happens a lot with Radiohead for me, where I'm certain I understand and love Radiohead on the most surfacey level compared to all of my friends <laughs> who I think understand it on like a, a Brian Eno level or something like mm -hmm. that. Is there anything else you want to share with everyone that you're working on now or that you can look forward to in the future? I don't think I can share anything at this moment. I told you I was working on this pilot, this multi-camera pilot that I'm very excited for. is for ABC and I'm really excited for it because it is a, a show that is structured like the shows I grew up watching. Like I'm trying to write what I think would be a fun version of an eight-scene multi-camera show and I thought about Cheers a lot when I was working on it, where the whole first season of Cheers, which I think is a great show, they never even left the bar. And how do you create a show where you just want to sit in one set the entire time for 22 episodes? Like, how do you create characters like that? And I found that to be a really fun, interesting intellectual experiment and a way to write. And I hope I get to show it to everybody and that they find it as fun and uh, satisfying as I found it. This has been a lot of fun. Folly, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Thank you, sir. Coming up in the weeks ahead, what I've been teasing, two IDW graphic novels coming in October, which Diamond Previews has rated Certified Cool. One of these authors I speak with also explored the life of Rod Serling, producer and screenwriter of the science fiction anthology series The Twilight Zone. We will discuss that work as well. 
I just recorded two outstanding interviews last week with authors of two graphic novels. The first examines the Constitution of the United States, the framers, their fights, and the flaws that affect us today. Another interview coming in September is with the author of a graphic novel about an iconic rock group that was one of the architects of the 1960s counterculture, influencing artists, poets, and outsiders for generations to come. Want to know the details? Well, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod for the details to follow. But why take a chance on missing one episode of Creator Talks interviews? Subscribe to your favorite podcast catcher. The content is free and it is available every other Thursday. And occasionally, I'll release a bonus episode. If you listen to this interview using Apple Podcasts, I'd really appreciate you leaving a rating and review. I might just read it on the show. In the world of comics, how about the release of DC editorial staff in the past couple weeks? I was reading how Jim Lee had said that about 20 to 25% of the lower selling titles will probably get cut. So just as I'm adding more titles to my list from DC, they're going to start cutting them, and no doubt, it'll be the ones that I really like. Now since I read comics in both print and digital format, I'm hoping, really hoping, that some of those titles that sell in lower numbers that I can read them digitally so I can continue to read those stories that I'm enjoying so much. However, Jim Lee in an interview also referred to those lower selling titles as being not profitable. So if they're not profitable, can they be profitable if they were digital only? And think not only on the impact of the readers, but think about the local comic shops. How will this affect them if DC's cutting all these titles? Will that leave more room for other publishers' titles? Time will tell. For Creator Talks, this has been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.